This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. I'm your host, Eamon Ormseth. Today we're replaying a discussion published on Monday, November 9th by Jewish Currents and the Diaspora Alliance entitled Hijacking Memory, the Holocaust and the Siege of Gaza. The conversation is moderated by Linda Kinstler, the author of Come to This Court and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends, and a contributing writer to Jewish Currents. Before we begin, a few news briefs. An Israeli army raid in Jenin, ongoing since the early hours of Tuesday, has killed at least 10 Palestinians. This comes as the death toll due to Israeli attacks in Gaza surpasses 18,400 people. Strong wind and heavy rain in Gaza overnight on Wednesday brought even worse misery to displaced families, tearing and flooding flimsy tents, drenching clothes and blankets, and making everyone cold as diseases spread due to the lack of sanitation, fresh water, and medicine. Mossad chief David Barnea offered to travel to Qatar in a bid to restart negotiations on a deal to free more Israeli hostages held in Gaza, but Israel's war cabinet rejected the offer, according to reports published Wednesday evening by Israel's Channel 13. Uh, Omer Vapartov is a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Brown University and the author of many books interrogating the relation between total war, genocide, and anti-Semitism. His work reveals with exacting detail how genocidal violence has historically unfolded in Eastern Europe and elsewhere, and he has also written about how the memory of the Holocaust informs contemporary Israeli politics. Yelena Subotich is a professor of political science at Georgia State University, whose work engages with memory politics, human rights, transitional justice, international ethics, and state identity. Her recent book, Yellow Star, Red Star, analyzes practices of Holocaust remembrance and the appropriation of Holocaust memory in Eastern Europe after communism. Raz Sigal is a professor of Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Stockton University, whose work documents how the Holocaust unfolded in the Carpathian region. Earlier this month, his article, A Textbook Case of Genocide, published in Jewish Currents, argued that not only is Israel's campaign against Gaza yet another chapter in the Nakba, but also that it clearly fits the definition of genocide according to international law. Uh, my name is Linda Kinsler. I'm the author of Come to This Court and Cry, How the Holocaust Ends, and I'm also a contributing writer to Jewish Currents magazine. Before we begin, I also want to encourage our audience to sign up both for the Diaspora Alliance newsletter and for the Jewish Currents newsletter, as well as to visit the magazine's website where you can see all of our coverage of recent events. So the first question, Omer, I'm going to go to you, and I'm wondering if you can begin by speaking to how Holocaust memory has been historically deployed as part of Israeli national discourse and state building, and speak to how you have seen that history informing the rhetoric uh, that is coming out of Israel in the present. So thank you for having me on this panel, and thank you to all the people are listening to us. Um, I would actually start before the Holocaust because we have to understand that one of the main roots of, of Zionism as a Jewish national movement uh, was anti-Semitism in Europe. The other one was obviously the rise of nationalism and especially ethno-nationalism in Eastern Europe. So in that sense, I would say that built in a sense into the DNA of Zionism and then the early pre-state community in Palestine, is already a sense that that community is a response to violence against Jews, to anti-Semitism and to pogroms. And then in the wake of the Holocaust, 
also with the arrival of many hundreds of thousands of survivors of the Holocaust uh, into Israel, that, that becomes part of, of the human terrain in Israel. But the use of the Holocaust itself as an event that has become a major component of Israeli national identity takes a while. It doesn't happen right away, not r right after 1948. I would say that the beginning of it is the Eichmann trial in the early 1960s, when for the first time the Holocaust in its details is presented to the Israeli public with the kind of educational goal of teaching the youth what their national identity is all about and how they differ from those Jews who, so to speak, uh, went like sheep to the slaughter. Politically, it takes even longer than that. And I would say that it's only in the wake of the War of 1973 and increasingly in the 1980s that the Holocaust comes to be a major slogan for Israeli governments and the various telling moments, perhaps one of the best uh, or worst, uh, if you like, is when Menachem Begin speaks about uh, Arafat then in besieged Beirut, and there's some echoes to the present situation, as Hitler hiding in his bunker. That is, that immediately evokes a whole set of associations in the minds of Israelis and making all kinds of connotations, many of which, of course, are ahistorical, but nonetheless resonate very powerfully in a sort of general Israeli psyche. And at present, this has become, I think, a major element in the arsenal of the current government, which is trying to cover up for its own huge debacle on October 7th. And here, I think we have two components that are really important to uh, consider. One is that the Hamas attack on October 7th was an absolutely atrocious, heinous act that had echoes with what people associate with pogroms, with the Holocaust, and so forth, and was the, large, the single largest slaughter of Jewish civilians, it appears, since World War II. And that has echoed tremendously in Israel. It's, it's extraordinary to see how people, without being directed by state propaganda or anything, have responded to that. Uh, so that's one side of it. The second aspect of it is that as a result, any uh, sensitivity or worry shown regarding what Israel is engaged in now in Gaza is immediately translated into denialism. So while in a sense, trying to deny what is happening in Gaza, and very little of it is being shown on Israeli screens. Most Israeli citizens see very little of it. At the same time, while that is being denied, any mention of it is perceived as denial of uh, the massacre of October 7th, and therefore of denial of Jewish victimhood, and therefore denial of the Holocaust. So there's a kind of cascading set of images and I think when we talk about this, we have to keep all of this in mind. And it's not only from the top, it's something that has been internalized by many Israeli citizens, including very much, and interestingly, I would say, from a sort of ethnographic point of view, also among many members of the Israeli left. That's so interesting. And I do um, appreciate how you kind of spoke to the kind of cascading set of images and these threats of denial. Uh, which for me personally have been very difficult 
uh, to hear, even as we see quite consistent denials of what is going on in Gaza coming from uh, Israeli authorities. Uh, and I do think this kind of leads us naturally to the next question, which uh, was for you, Yelena, because you have written about how Holocaust memory has been deployed to secure political legitimacy in contemporary Europe. And I'm wondering if you can speak to how you have kind of seen this push against Holocaust denial and the invocation of Holocaust memory playing out currently in European capitals, you know, with the kind of Brandenburg Gate, never again is now phenomenon. I'm curious to hear both how you have seen this kind of rhetoric coming out of European politicians, as well as in uh, diaspora communities on the continent. Sure, thank you. And thanks again for organizing this and for, for inviting me. So I first want to say what I mean by Holocaust memory providing political legitimacy for European states. First to explain that, and then I'll, I'll, I'll say a few things about what's playing out in European capitals. I think the case of Germany, obviously, is the most interesting one. So my, my whole premise here is that when we talk about public Holocaust memory, so not private memory of individuals and families, but public Holocaust memory, and that is memory represented in museums or official commemorative practices or history books. Uh, I, my premise is that today that public Holocaust memory is often uh, largely decoupled from the Holocaust itself, and instead it serves contemporary state political needs. This is what I mean by legitimacy. It, it situates, the political memory of the Holocaust situates these national narratives and national biographies on a kind of spectrum where nations see themselves either as heroes or as sisters or as victimized uh, victims uh, and those who suffered. And those kinds of public narratives then avoid the possibility of collaboration, perpetration, or genocidal intent. Everybody is a victim. Everybody was a resistor. Everybody was hiding their Jews all over Europe. I mean, that's kind of bottom line what I'm talking about here. And so my argument really has been that Holocaust memory is then used to put forward these very contemporary national narratives of your own contemporary national identity today, also to create new kinds of domestic and international coalitions and partnerships. And I've uh, written about how uh, Israeli far right has, has used these international coalitions with seemingly very anti-Semitic uh, governments, such as, for example, the ones in Hungary, and how, how these then uh, processes serve uh, particular foreign policy decisions, uh, both of Israel and of these uh, European countries. Another way in which Holocaust memory in contemporary Europe, especially in the West, has also served as a type of screen memory that covers the responsibility of some of these countries from their own atrocities, obviously, in colonial period. And so a lot has been written about how the self-congratulatory narrative about how everybody resisted the Nazis, uh, you know, during the Holocaust then covers uh, any interest in memorializing uh, in a, in a admitting your complicity and uh, even admitting that colonialism was, was a crime of its own. And so we see this a lot in, uh, in, in the context of Germany, for example. And especially, I think Germany is, is interesting here um, because it has developed, again, a particular kind of self-congratulatory, almost national pride in how uniquely well the German nation dealt with its criminal legacies. But of the Holocaust, not in its criminal legacies of German colonialism in the 19th century. And that I think has fueled 
almost a new form of German nationalism of superiority that manifests itself as kind of memory championship. We're the champions of memory. We do this so much better than everybody else. Um, and, you know, this is not a uniquely German phenomenon. This has happened in, in other places as well, but I think it explains to a large extent the really troubling features of contemporary uh, Holocaust memory that we see in Germany, which is really very uh, bluntly uh, been used to uh, foreclose any debate about the complexities, uh, both of the Holocaust itself, uh, but also the complexities of the current situation in Israel. And we all know uh, uh, the blunt force with which all sorts of speech and uh, action, political, cultural, academic, artistic, has been um, policed in Germany and, and really presented this very, very flattening view where any uh, uh, speech that can be perceived as criticizing Israel is by default anti-Semitic, which is really, I mean, you know, the Aspera Alliance exists uh, to, to question that, uh, that whole premise. So I think within that context, I think it, it makes a little bit more clear why uh, there's been a, a particular type of um, invocation of the Holocaust, especially in Germany and the, and the gate that you mentioned, where um, everything goes back to the Holocaust. There's one view of the Holocaust. We know in Germany how to memorize the Holocaust. And, and we know, uh, and we are the only ones who properly know what is going on. And, and I think that has produced some really paradoxical and, and, and kind of pathological uh, responses. This is Understanding Israel-Palestine. If you're just tuning in, today we're replaying a discussion hosted by Jewish Currents and the Diaspora Alliance entitled Hijacking Memory, The Holocaust and the Siege of Gaza. Moderated by Linda Kinsler, the conversation features Omer Bartov, Raz Segal, and Yelena Subotic. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much, Yelena. And I appreciate uh, your description of the kind of blunt force that is used to foreclose debate, but also we could argue to blind us to other kinds of genocides that are ongoing on the, in the present um, to kind of elevate this form of memory above all else. Um, and that leads me, Roz, to ask you, uh, you know, you wrote this piece warning of a genocide ongoing in Gaza, and since then uh, 800 scholars have, and public figures have joined you in sounding the alarm. And you have also cautioned against Israeli leaders weaponizing the Holocaust in their public remarks. And we provided a few examples, although unfortunately there are many of them uh, in the event description. So I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about how you have witnessed this kind of weaponization of the rhetoric of Holocaust memory at work in the present. And since you wrote the piece, how have you kind of seen the situation evolve? And Omer, I also kind of want to bring you in here because I know you have also addressed this question head on, including in your recent piece for the New York Times. So, um, you know, I think that uh, the situation has become worse, of course, uh, since that uh, piece that I wrote uh, in The Guardian. Uh, and I see that, you know, the weaponization of the Holocaust, I see it uh, unfolding in three main ways. One is this kind of historical decontextualized mechanism, as you mentioned, Omer, 
of portraying Israel now as facing a genocidal assault by Hamas, which also means that Hamas, and by implications, Palestinians are Nazis, right? Now, besides the fact that this is, of course, completely false, right, it's, it's also absolutely decontextualized. And it's worth just to stress that Jews during World War II were stateless, powerless people who faced one of the strongest armies and states at the time, Nazi Germany, their allies, the genocidal assault by these perpetrators, whereas Israel, of course, very powerful state with a very powerful and advanced army that enjoys the support of all the Western uh, powers. And Palestinians are stateless, powerless people under decades of Israeli settler colonialism, military occupation, siege, various forms of mass violence. None of this takes away from the horrendous character of the uh, Hamas mass murder on 7th of October. But context matters. Context is what shows us that this, this form of weaponization of portraying Israel as facing a genocidal assault and Palestinians as Nazis is completely decontextualized and false. It's also, of course, contributing factor to the dehumanization of Palestinians, portraying Palestinians as Nazis as one of dehumanization that is very common in Israel today, but also, unfortunately, we see it in Europe, we see it here in the US. Just about, I think, a week ago, there was a congressman who said, you know, who cautioned against uh, humanitarian assistance to Palestinians and not to uh, portray Palestinians as uh, innocent, uh, because would we portray Nazis as you know innocent in this way? So we see this uh, kind of decontextualization and dehumanization also in the U.S., in Europe, and of course uh, in Israel. A second way in which I see this weaponization is is the way in which we need to understand what's happening now is a shock to the international legal system. And what I mean by that is. The international legal system that emerged after World War II and really crystallized in the 90s was based on the idea that the Holocaust is unique and exceptional. And by application, it was based on the uh, idea that Jews are actually unique and exceptional. Now, this is not very surprising when we think about the Judeo-Christian Western world, right, where Jews indeed play a foundational role. I mean, the Nazis thought that Jews played a foundational role. So, of course, the international legal system takes this Nazi view and turns it on its head, and now Jews play a positive foundational uh, role. By implications for that, the self-proclaimed Jewish state is also unique and exceptional. So impunity for Israel in the international legal system was baked into it from the very beginning, right? The idea that Israel could perpetrate genocide, or actually any crime under international law for that matter, but certainly genocide, and became unimaginable, became really unspeakable. And that's why we have impunity for Israel, even though we have mounting evidence for decades, right, of war crimes, crimes against humanity, of violations of international humanitarian law, just by the fact of military occupation and siege and so on. So the weaponization of the Holocaust now, the portrayal of Israel actually facing another uh, Holocaust and Palestinians and Nazis, is meant to uphold the system, even though what we're witnessing now unfolding in front of our eyes, this genocidal assault in front of our eyes, absolutely is a shock to the system. Uh, so this this is another element of of weaponization of the Holocaust in this uh, in this context, and that's why we're absolutely going to see a lot of pushback against the genocide narrative, even though I think that the evidence is quite clear and it's increasing uh, uh, by the day. So weaponizing the Holocaust in this way 
supports uh, uh, this foundation of the international legal system. And the third way we're seeing the weaponization of the Holocaust, unfortunately, is uh, by uh, Holocaust scholars. And just a couple of days ago, there was a statement that dozens of Holocaust scholars, including some very central figures, signed that had no mention whatsoever of any form of Israeli mass violence, right? Complete, basically, denial of Israeli mass violence and horrendous dehumanization of Palestinians who appear in the statement only as, quote-unquote, human shields. That's the only place, by the way, that's very common today, that Palestinians are humanized only when they're quote, human shields in this kind of, of discourse. Of course, the condemnation of Hamas, but again, no mention whatsoever of Israeli mass violence, participation in this dehumanization of Palestinians from the perspective of Holocaust studies. So that's unfortunately another form of weaponization of the Holocaust today that I think uh, we should be aware of because, and I'll end my comments with this, I think that also within Holocaust and genocide studies, what we're witnessing in front of our eyes is a shock, right? And I think there's more and more scholars who understand basically that business as usual in Holocaust and genocide studies is in a way not possible. Things need to change in significant ways because Israel did have also a special place in discussions in Holocaust and genocide studies. So weaponizing the Holocaust as in the example of these Holocaust scholars is also a pushback, right? And saying, no, we can basically continue as it is. Everything is fine, whereas it's clear that we can't. So, yeah, thank you. And thank you, Oz. Um, I, I want to make a few very quick points that maybe we can discuss later as well. I think one one issue that is important to grasp, and I sort of, I'm not in Israel right now, but I'm trying to uh, follow things very closely, both on the Israeli media and with friends and many conversations. I think what I'm struck by in looking at what's going on in Israel right now, for many Israeli citizens, there's a very profound sense of uh, a sort of loss of sense of security, that people feel extremely insecure. Now, now partly it's because, uh, you know, hundreds of thousands of people have owned tens of thousands, about 150,000 people have been displaced because the the, the rockets um, flying and, and so forth. And of course, because of the events of October 7th. But it is very, it's, it's core to what is happening now within the Israeli public. And it feeds into a kind of um, old-term anxiety within Israeli society that is, of course, uh, up for grabs by uh, various politicians. But But one has to recognize it. One result of it is that because the Israeli government is completely incapable of speaking of a political horizon to what it is currently undertaking in Gaza, there's no pressure on it from the public to do so. That is because the anxiety is such that uh, people basically want to regain their sense of security by just destroying the other side, and they don't want to think about the future, which is making the what is happening in Gaza much more acceptable, quite apart from the lack of information. Um, not that people can't get it if they want to, but they're basically only watching, you know, Israeli news. That plays into a dehumanization of uh, Palestinians, which is all over the place, of course, and we've seen these sort of 
genocidal statements by a variety of Israeli leaders talking about human animals and so forth uh, in Gaza and a very easy slippage between we want to destroy Hamas and we want to destroy Gaza. What is it exactly? Who are the human animals? Who are these beasts that, 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 that we have to destroy? I have to say that the dehumanization, of course, didn't start there. As often with propaganda in any place, it has to have some deeper roots. So the dehumanization of Palestinians in Israel goes way back. It goes back to 56 years of occupation of Palestinians, to generations of young Israelis who serve as policemen in occupied territories and create a particular image of the people that they are bossing it over. And then they come back to Tel Aviv or to wherever they high-fi in Jerusalem and they they appear like totally normal Western people, but in their experience, there is that experience of being occupying policemen, breaking into homes at four in the morning and so forth. That dehumanization has much deeper roots in the occupation, in the ongoing occupation. Now, again, what is, what is interesting here is that it is, it's responding now to a sense that there is a growth of anti-Semitism around the world. And so that Israel is not only engaged in a war against Hamas, it's engaged in some larger project. And what, what helps it, of course, is that there are manifestations of anti-Semitism, including in some of the demonstrations against Israel. So it's not like everything else. It's not all invented. Some of it is real, but the whole thing then becomes a kind of general attack on Israel, and that therefore Israel has to defend itself because of a looming catastrophe. That insecurity internal and that sense of external danger that the whole world is against us, this old Israeli trope, comes to play in a way where the Holocaust is always in the background, and therefore we have to do whatever we must to destroy our enemies. And everything, we have a carte blanche to do whatever is needed for that. On the, on the issue of the, of the international legal system, I mean, I, I may be in some uh, disagreement with Raz on that. I mean, I, I don't think that the, the way that the international legal system was instituted after World War II, it obviously was in response to events in the war, and that was the trigger for it, although it had much deeper roots than that. I, I don't think it was necessarily focused on Israel. I do think that it is now, and here I totally agree, it is now being challenged greatly. And I'd say that it's challenged because what we are looking at right now is a situation where, as I wrote in this op-ed in the, in the New York Times, I'm still not convinced that there is genocide happening right now, and we can talk why and so forth, but there have been many statements of genocidal intent, and over the days, even since this piece came out three, four days ago, there are more and more indications of a clear effort of ethnic cleansing. That is that a million Gazans have been moved from northern Gaza to southern Gaza, and ethnic cleansing, apart from genocidal statements or statements with the genocidal content, is a very good indicator of a potential genocide. When when I was writing, when I started getting responses on what I wrote, it was very interesting for me in terms of how people respond to something like that. Interesting. Sometimes it's troubling, of course. So some of the responses were people felt that I, I had liberated them. That is, that I said something that they had wanted to say but felt uncomfortable saying. 
because they might be put under some kind of perspective that they didn't want to be seen as anti-Zionist or as uh, not good Jews or as attacking the state of the Jews or something along that lines. And other people, not least from Israel, have seen what I wrote as a treasonous. In fact, some people told me that I should be stripped of my Israeli citizenship. And so what you find is that speaking about this right now is challenging the whole paradigm of thinking about Israel. And to my mind, the events on the ground right now can actually only be resolved by a change of the political paradigm, not only of the, you know, the paradigm through which we look at things, but actually the, the day after cannot be a day after without a major shift in a paradigm, political shift of the paradigm that existed under the Netanyahu administration for at least the last 20 years. This has been Understanding Israel-Palestine. The full recording of this conversation, hosted by Jewish Currents and the Diaspora Alliance, can be accessed at jewishcurrents.org. Thank you for listening.